Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. I'm glad to see you all tonight. Turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 17. Last week, we looked at God's judgment against Israel and that he used Assyria as the tool in his sovereignty, a nation that did not know Yahweh, a nation that were not believers in the God of the Bible, and yet God in his sovereignty used that nation in order to punish his people Israel. But then because of the haughtiness with which Assyria came down on Israel, God also punished Assyria for their haughtiness. And so this is again a demonstration of God's absoluteness, of God's sovereignty, of God's holiness, and of God's control over absolutely everything. Uh, People argue constantly I get it in my email all the time. People who say, well, I'm willing to allow that God is sovereign over some things. There are some things that I want God to be in, whether that's earthquakes and tornadoes or planes running into buildings or my child is sick. I would like God to enter into that. But when it comes to like what cereal I eat in the morning, I think God leaves that up to me. Or when it comes to which path I'm going to drive to work, God leaves that up to me. And and I have often asked the question, well, then where exactly, not in vague terms, but where exactly do you draw the line? Where exactly is the line between things that God is involved in and things that he's not involved in? After all, if the writer of the Proverbs can say that the lot is cast into the lap, which just is like throwing dice, throwing the lot, and yet the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord, well then that line that you're about to draw has to be under casting lots. It has to be under apparently random things like throwing dice. When Jesus said, consider the uh, birds of the air that two of the sparrows are sold for a farthing, virtually nothing. And yet he says, not a single one of them can fall from the sky without your father. Okay, so God's in charge of birds falling from the sky, and he's in charge of casting lots. Okay, it's starting to sound like God's really involved in the minutia. It sounds like he's into the details. Now, In a large sense, I've used this example before, but in a very large sense, God's sovereignty gives us the illusion of choice. Among the various choices you appear to have, God is still in charge of those choices. Let me give you this example. My son, when he was young, uh, we used to reward him when he would come home from school. If he'd had a good day and then he got his homework done, we would let him play certain things in his room. He could play his Nintendo set or he could use his Kinects or he could do the various things that we had provided for him. So one day he came home and he had had a real good day at school. Everything had worked out fine. And his homework was all done and everything was done. 
And he said, well, what can I do? And I said, you can go in your room and do anything you want. And he lit up. He said, I can do anything? I said, yeah, you can do anything. Now, I stood outside the door of his room, knowing full well that I had provided him the Nintendo and the Kinects and the the Legos and all the things that were in his room. Among the myriad of choices that he felt he had, they were only choices that I had already provided for him. And I had purposefully not provided him things that I did not want him to have. And so he could not choose those things. And yet he had the illusion that he could choose anything. And so I look at God, my (coughs) Heavenly Father, the same way. There are choices, or at least the illusion of choice, in my life between one thing and another thing, but I realize that the things I'm choosing among are all things that God has provided for me in advance. And so I'm not really choosing outside the will of God. There is no way to get outside the will of God. If God has a will for your life, a determination for your life, and you can somehow get out of that will, well, then you're stronger than God. We have to stop worshiping him, and we have to start worshiping you, because you're the one who figured out how to get outside the will of an absolutely sovereign God. So last week, we saw God in his sovereignty using nations to punish nations. Tonight, we're going to see two different examples of God using animals in order to punish nations, which I find fascinating. I mean, it is true that Jesus spoke about the sparrows and that not one of them was able to fall without your father. But a couple times in First and Second Kings now, we've seen God punish people, individuals, through the use of a lion. Well, he's going to do the same thing here. He's going to punish the people that Assyria put into the land of Samaria. He's going to punish them with lions, and yet when they were at home, when they were in the places before the Assyrians had moved them, when they were in their homelands, they had not been attacked by lions. But the simple act of moving from their homeland into the land that belonged to God, the land that God had given to Israel in perpetuity, The land that God had even said to Israel, when you go into that land, not only am I going to give you rest from your enemies, not only is it a land of milk and honey where I'm going to provide you plenty of food, but he also said, it's one of his promises, I will protect you from wild animals. Because wild animals were a big deal in that part of the Middle East. It's a desert area. And so that's why you find so many animal-based examples in the Old and New Testament, because they had to deal with animals a lot. But here in this chapter of 2 Kings, we're going to read that God specifically brought lions to punish the people who went into the land of Israel. And they didn't even choose to go there. The Assyrians sent them there. And so they went into the land according to what the Assyrians said. It's not even their fault. When they were in their homeland, God was not punishing them. But as soon as they went into the land where they didn't belong, God punishes them with lions. Well, what does that tell you about God's absolute control? God is in charge of lions. As far as I can tell, 
The only animals he is not in charge of are my three cats. But every other animal on the planet, God takes complete credit for what those animals do. So when we think about sovereignty, when we think about God being in charge, it's important that we don't just think about it in terms of salvation, who's saved and who's not. But it also extends into the throwing of lots and the falling of birds and the, the vast many things that God takes credit for in the book of Job, for instance. It's one of the oldest books in the Bible, and yet God starts with asking Job, where were you when I did everything? And he ends up saying that he's responsible for everything from being there when baby deer are born. He's there feeding baby birds. And he's equally in charge of the sweet influence of the Pleiades. Okay, that's pretty extensive. You're going from baby animals all the way to constellation groups and how all of them play out on the planet. And this isn't just a prophet saying that. This is God saying for himself, I do all this. And so uh, he even says to Job, let's see you do some of the things I can do. I can actually pull snow out of the clouds. And I can cause lightning. And I can make my voice thunder. How about you do some of that? And he ends up by saying, when you can do any of the things that I can do, then I will admit that your own hand can save you. So God uses his sovereignty not only as evidence of his complete control, but also the complete lack of control on the part of humans. I cannot get animals to do my bidding. <laughs> I simply can't. But God can. And so keep that in mind as we look at the last half of chapter 17 of 2 Kings. The Assyrians now are going to bring people in from the land of Assyria. People groups that they have conquered, they're going to put them into the land of Samaria, the area where the Israelites had previously occupied before their deportation. And God takes credit for all of it. We're starting in verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and they lived in its cities. And it came about at the beginning of their living there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, because they did not fear the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh. We're going to find out in a minute. They had lots of other gods. They carried their gods with them. They had plenty of worship. But they didn't fear Yahweh. And they were on the land of Yahweh. And therefore, Yahweh sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now, I'm sure to the onlookers, that seemed like a fairly random thing. Did you hear about Joe? He got eaten by a lion. Joe. Joe. It's a good old Hebrew name. It's a good old Assyrian name, Joe. Short for Jehoshaphat. I don't know. There's no J, so it's Yob. Or would be Yob. Yeah. Yo. Yo, yo. <laughs> yeah. Don't encourage this behavior. 
So look at what God has done. The writer of 2 Kings has saying, this is God who is doing this. God who provided protection from the wild animals to the Israelites, took his hand of protection off the land of Samaria so that lions would inhabit the area and kill the people who were placed there by the Assyrians. So this is what they did. They realized, I guess it was such a plague, that they realized that it was actually Yahweh doing it. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the customs of the God of that land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the customs of the God of this land. So it apparently was bad enough they realized this is their God that's doing this. It had to be a pretty major lion attack, and it had to be kind of out of nowhere. If there already were lots of lions just laying around being lions, then no surprise that they went all lion on you. But if suddenly there's a, a proliferation of lions killing people, then they recognize this is a curse from God. This is a judgment from God on us. And so they wisely say, we better get us a priest. We need somebody who can intercede with this God. And he's not listening to us. So get us a priest from Judah. Then the king of Assyria commanded saying, take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile and let him go and live there and let him teach them the customs of the God of the land. Okay, on the surface again, this seems like a good idea. There's only one priest, but at least give them a priest, and he's going to teach them the ways of the God of the land. And we're going to find out in a moment that they recognize the value of worshiping the God of that land, but the problem that they had was that they did not abandon their old gods. Instead, what they did is what so many people still do to this very day. And if it is true that God does not change, then God's anger at them for doing it back then is the same as God's anger at people doing it now. What they did was they said, we're going to have some God, that biblical God, that God of Israel, the God of this land. Sure, we'll have some of that, but we're also going to have the gods that we already worship. We're going to treat him as if he's one of many. And because we're including him in the larger group, we expect him to bless us and take care of us. But God's anger is again riled against them because once they came to know something at least about the true God, the fact that they didn't fear him individually, the fact that they didn't treat him uniquely and worship him alone, which of course is the first of the commandments. You're going to have no other gods before me. Secondly, you're not going to make any graven images. But they're going to continue making images. And they're going to continue worshiping their foreign gods. And they're going to go on the mountaintops. And they're going to go in the ashram. And they're going to go in the groves. And they're going to have their whole field of gods who they think are <coughs> better safe than sorry. You know, if I, if I worship all the gods then at least I'm covered regardless of which God is real. At least I can say, well, I included you in the group. Now, a minute ago, I said that's really going on still today. It's obvious in Eastern religion like Hinduism, which has thousands of gods. I remember reading about a 
Christian missionary who was traveling in, I believe it was Nepal, but he was dealing with some Hindus and he was surprised that in one of their temples, among all the pictures of all their gods, they had a Jesus image. And he was writing the article from a positive point of view. Wow, I found Jesus in a temple in Nepal. But actually, biblically, that's like saying Jesus is no different than your three-headed elephant god. They're co-equals. There's a command that runs all the way through the Bible from beginning to end, which is God, the real God, the living God, has to be distinctly and uniquely, supremely and singularly worshipped. And that it's not good enough to say, I'll have some God and my other gods. Now, if we're really getting picky about it, we could even say that people worship on Sundays. They go and worship God, worship Christ, but then all week they worship sports stars or rock stars or politicians or certainly everybody who believes that the next guy is going to fix it all. They're giving some of that credibility, some of that worship to other people. Or, as Jeff well knows, the, this Jeff, not that Jeff, as Jeff well knows, there is an incursion going on in the American modern evangelical church of all of these Eastern religions, all of this contemplative prayer and all of these, these ideas that really developed in Gnostic religion in the East. Well, that's becoming very, very popular among the people whose religion is based on experience. I've got to have some experience and that will unite me to all the other Christian people. And so they very freely and very wrongly include the worship of other gods along with the God of the Bible. And that's just dangerous territory. Well, here's what happened. So the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the customs of the God of that land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places, which the people of Samaria had made. So there were high places. Remember that the problems with all of the kings of the northern kingdom was that they did have their high places and their altars and their golden calves and their ashram and their groves. They did have their places of foreign worship. And all that these people did was move into those self-same places of worship so that they could continue worshiping their gods. Every nation... In the cities in which they live, that's what they did. Verse 30, and the men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. Now, these are the names of their different gods. Some of them have disappeared to history. Some of them, we don't know what these names exactly mean. Some we do know. For instance, the men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nurgle. The men of Hamath made Ashamah. Nurgle is a god of the underworld. He's a god of darkness and destruction. We know that still. There are still people writing about him. But we don't know much about Ashima. The Avarites 
made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech. Do you hear the name Molech right in there? The Molech gods were the metal gods that they would stoke until they were burning with fire, and they had outstretched hands. And the custom was that they would take their children and their babies and put them into the frying outstretched hands of the Molech gods. And they believed that the cries and anguish of the baby dying, burning to death, was going to appease the wrath of the god Molech. So they had Adremelech and Anemelech, who were the gods of the Sepharvaim. But then they also feared the Lord and appointed from themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. So now, remember what God has assigned, that it's going to be the Levites, one of the tribes of Israel, the Levites specifically, God took to himself. This goes back all the way to the Passover. On the night of the Passover, the firstborn sons of all of the Egyptians were killed as the death angel came through Egypt. And so since the firstborn children of Israel were spared that, God said, all your firstborn belong to me. And then he decided that he was just going to take one tribe, the tribe of the Levites, to belong to him exclusively. They were going to serve in the temple. It was only out of the tribes of the Levites that you could have priests. And the Levites did not have any land in Israel. They didn't have any inheritance in Israel. So the other 11 tribes all paid their tithes, their tents, to the Levites, since the Levites didn't have any land or agriculture to do all that stuff to take care of themselves. So God was very specific. It's from the Levites that the priests come who are going to worship me. And the people of the lands, once they learned from the priest of Israel what the proper worship of God was, they continued worshiping their own gods, and then they made priests for themselves and said, take care of that Yahweh thing for us, arbitrarily making priests. Well, this again is not what God commanded. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. To this day, says the writer of 2 Kings, to this day they do according to their earlier customs. They do not properly fear the Lord nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or their law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying, okay, we have to stop and talk for one moment, because this is another one of those didactic statements that you can sort of read right by. What was God doing with Israel at Mount Sinai? This is a topic of huge theological discussion. There are some people who say, well, he was codifying them as a nation. I agree with that. 
He was setting them up as a nation at Mount Sinai. But there was more going on than just that. He didn't just give them a law to follow. He didn't just give them ordinances. He didn't just give them the 613 rules. He was establishing a covenant with them. And that was so well known to the Hebrews. This was so well known to the Israelites that here he just says it in passing that these are the rules and the laws that God gave Israel when he formed a covenant with them. And this is obvious from the language. I know I've said this a few times, but if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, if you go back and look even at the book of uh, Exodus, you see that the Ten Commandments are called the words of the covenant. And you find that the tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on are called the tablets of the covenant. And they're placed inside a golden box that is called the Ark of the Covenant. And so it said over and over again, this is God forming a covenant with Israel. And because that covenant failed to save Israel, because that covenant through their weakness, through their sinfulness, through their inability to keep the rules, through their inability to keep God singular in their mind, they broke that covenant, which was a conditional covenant. God said from the very beginning, if you keep it, then I will do all these good things to you, take you into the land and protect you from your enemies and give you food and drive away the wild animals and you're going to have peace and safety and all that. But if you don't do it, I'm going to punish you. And so God very faithfully, when they broke the covenant, even though he had been long-suffering and patient with them, he finally had to take them out of the land because that was one of the things that he said he would do to them if they did not keep the covenant. And because they broke that covenant, because they could not be saved by that covenant, because they had broken that covenant, God will not be going back to that covenant to reestablish Israel. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Instead, what you find is the promise in the Old Covenant in Jeremiah 31. You find it in Isaiah, and you find it quoted again in Hebrews 8. It's the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament found anywhere in the New Testament, and it is the promise of a new covenant. And the language is very, very specific. The language of Jeremiah is, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with them when I took them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke. So the language is very, very specific. God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. They broke that covenant because it was a conditional covenant. God is not going to return to that covenant as if it's going to be able to save Israel. He has to make a new covenant, and that new covenant is unconditional. That new covenant is based on promises from God to erring people. And it is via that new covenant that people like you and I are able to have access to God, to pray to God, to believe in the God of Israel, to, to read that we are saved by the God of Israel. That's all based on new covenant principles of salvation by grace through faith. It's that covenant that God is going to turn to to reestablish Israel. You got all that? Mm-hmm. And it seems obvious now, doesn't it? When you just read what the Bible says, it's obvious that you can't go back to the broken covenant to fix everything. 
And way too many of the Church Israel replacement folk, I shouldn't say way too many of them, all of them, okay, they all say the same thing. They say, well, God made a conditional covenant at Mount Sinai, and then Israel broke the covenant. So God's done with Israel, except that all the prophets who promise a restoration to national Israel are writing after they broke the covenant. They all know, they all agree that Israel broke the covenant. That's admitted. God is punishing Israel because they broke the covenant. That's admitted. But all of the prophets with a singular voice all say the same thing. They all say, but God isn't going to lose them because he chose them. And that idea goes all the way into Romans, in the book of Romans, in the New Testament, Romans 11, that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. And then Paul takes the time to identify who all Israel is. He says, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, for you Gentiles' sake. So he's even writing about enemies of the gospel who are Israelites. And then he says, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Oh, well, as touching the election... Even though they have broken that covenant, God is not going to lose them because God is a God of faithfulness. And if Israel, who had been elected, who had been chosen, can be ultimately lost because of their own behavior, then I've got really bad news for you. God can also lose you because of your bad behavior. He has a history of doing that. But if he doesn't lose Israel, but punishes and corrects them and then restores them, I have really good news for you, which is God never loses his elect. And that's wonderful news. And it's all the way through the Bible, and it's why it's so important to understand the Old Covenant, New Covenant distinctives. And it's why Paul writes so often about the Old Covenant that cannot save, that can't accomplish what the New One can Okay, I, I veered off into all that because here's a place where the writer of 2 Kings just says as a matter of fact that God formed a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Verse 34, to this day they do according to their earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or their law or the commandments which the Lord commanded to the sons of Jacob whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying this. He said, you shall not fear other gods, nor bow down yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. Notice that those rules didn't change in the land of Samaria. Now, when these selfsame people were in their homeland and worshiping their other gods, God didn't send lions to find them. God didn't say, let me tell you where they are, go get them. But when they were in the land of Samaria, the land that belongs to God, the land that is promised to Israel in perpetuity, once they had occupied that land and worshipped foreign gods, that's when God punished them. So God's very zealous for his worship. The statutes and the ordinances and the law and the command which he wrote to you, you shall observe and you shall do forever. And you shall not fear other gods. Verse 38. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget. 
nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God, him you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hands of your enemies. However, they did not listen, but they did according to their earlier custom. So while these nations feared the Lord along with their other gods, they also served their idols and their children likewise and their grandchildren as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Now those people that were in the land of Samaria, uh, later on you're going to see that the Israelites leave the Assyrian captivity. The vast number of them go north through the headwaters of the Caucasus Mountains and essentially disappear to history, though there's plenty of evidence of, of where they went and, and what people groups they migrated into and how they got lost among the Gentiles. But some attempted to return to Samaria. That was, after all, their homeland. And when they got there, they did the very thing, again, that God had said not to. When God took the Israelites into the land of Samaria. Samaria was occupied with the Canaanites and Jebusites and Hivites and lots of otherites, Democrites. There were just all these people who were, who were already there. Just seeing if you're listening. And so God was very specific in saying, now you Israelites, don't give your daughters to their sons and don't give your sons to their daughters. There wasn't supposed to be any kind of intermingling between his chosen people and the people who lived there. But when the Israelites returned from the Assyrian captivity into Samaria, there were already all these people groups living there. And they began to cohabitate with them. And they produced a mixed-raced breed, who from that point forward become known as the Samaritans. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were a mixture of both Israelites and foreigners who were worshiping God and worshiping other things. That's why when Jesus went through Samaria and found the woman by the well, he said to her, you don't know what you worship. Because she said, well, you say you worship in Jerusalem and we say we worship up on the hills. And he ends up saying, you don't know what you're doing. So this is even more shocking when you know who the Samaritans are. And so Jesus tells a parable, and it's the parable that you all know of the good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. And this was shocking to his Jewish listeners because he talked about how a Samaritan was the only one who did good to this man who had been beaten and robbed. And because he did good to the beaten and robbed man, after the Pharisees and the priests and everybody else wanted nothing to do with him, it was a Samaritan that actually helped him. So that was Jesus' way of saying, whoever does you good, whoever treats you right, that's your brother. But he chose a Samaritan. He chose the people that, that they most hated. So Jesus was always kind of stirring up the dirt a little bit and keeping everybody going, wait, 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 that can't be the right teaching. I like that. Okay, so now we're going to quickly look at the beginning of chapter 18 because now the attention is going to turn to the kings of the southern kingdom. We know what's happened to the northern kingdom now. They've gone into the Assyrian captivity. They're going to live there for a while in slavery, but now the attention turns to the southern kingdom, and that's going to be the balance of 2 Kings. It's also the balance of 2 Chronicles next 
week, we'll take a look at some of the things that are said about Hezekiah out of Second Chronicles. Because Hezekiah is a really good king. God finally gives the southern kingdom uh, a good king who's going to follow in the footsteps of David. Where we have been reading in fast succession, there was this king, he, he became king at this age, he ruled for 15 years, he died, he was buried, the rest of it's written in a book. When it comes to Hezekiah, all of a sudden it's like ink and paper doesn't matter, we're just going to write about Hezekiah because he was finally a good king. So let's take a look at the beginning of chapter 18, and then we're going to look at the book of Numbers for a moment and see one more time that God used animals in order to punish people, and then I think we'll call it a night. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi. The Second Chronicles calls her Abijah. She was the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that nice to hear? <laughs> We've been reading so many kings that did not do right in the sight of the Lord. It's so good to read. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Now as we continue reading about him, we're going to see that he makes a few questionable decisions. Of course. But it's nice to know that he's for God, God's for him. And the vast majority of the things we're going to read about him are very positive. Starting right off with, he removed the high places, and he broke down the sacred pillars, and he cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses made. Okay, that's our jumping off point. Because you have to understand what this bronze serpent is in order to understand why people were worshiping it. People were worshiping it wrongly. They were not saying God uniquely and distinctly, he solely gets all of our worship. They were saying, well, yes, all that and this thing. Sort of the way that the Catholic Church says, you know, we, we believe in God, we follow God, but I also have the hair of St. Andrew and I worship that. And we've also got this icon over here and we've also got this picture and and we light candles to statues of Mary, and we, there is still plenty of that dispersion of worship going around in the world. But Hezekiah was such a good king that when he saw people worshiping this emblem, not only did he call it a rude name, he destroyed it. He called it Nahushtan, which means a worthless thing of brass. Now, there's people worshiping this. There's people bowing down in front of this. There are people who are doing obeisance to this thing. And the king destroys it and says, it's a nothing. It's Nahashtan. It's worthless. It's a thing of brass. So let's find out quickly why people were worshiping it. Go back to the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And we're going to go to Numbers 21. We'll just briefly look at the story of why there was even a Nahushtan to begin with. When we were going through the book of Numbers, we read about this. 
which means for those of you with good long-term memory, <laughs> then you know about this story. I have no idea when we were in the book of Numbers. It was years ago, but we read about this. Chapter 21 of the book of Numbers, verse 6. I see people still flipping and punching their iPads. Everybody there? Let's start at verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord, to Yahweh, and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of this place is called Hormah. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. This is during their 40 years in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. You might remember how often they became impatient. God gave them bread to eat every day from heaven. All they had to do was walk outside and there's food. And they reached the point where they said, my soul loathes this light bread. Because they had done everything they could do with it. We fried it, we boiled it, we made sandwiches out of it. We've done everything we can do with it. We're sick of this completely free bread that comes down from heaven yes, all day, every day, and is, is completely nutritionally satisfying. No, we don't want that. And so God, because of their impatience, sent them quail. And they had to walk through all the dead quail, and they could eat their heart's content. And then we read that even as the quail was in their mouth, God made them sick on quail. God's punishment for not accepting what God provided. I'm, I'm giving you free food every day except the Sabbath. In fact, on Fridays, I want you to go out and pick up twice as much bread as every other day, and it'll still stay good. But if you pick up twice as much bread on, say, Tuesday, when you get up the next day, it'll have maggots in it. So this is even bread that understands a calendar. This is bread that knows what day of the week it is. This is heavenly bread. They're sick of it. So same thing happens here. They get sick of it. When they ran out of water, they started complaining. Oh, you brought us out here into the desert to kill us. Like that was God's divine plan. Yeah, yeah, uh-uh. I'll bring you out in the wilderness and kill you. And actually God's plan was to bring them out so that they could see the miraculous provision of God. And so we had Moses go and strike a rock, and water came out of the rock. A God who can do that has got your back. A God who can do that is going to protect you all the way to the promised land of milk and honey. All you have to do is trust him. Well, they don't. They did not trust him. Verse 4, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, which means they're quite close to the promised land. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Isn't that something? 
We love this free food we get every day from heaven. There's no other nation on the planet. There's no other people group on the planet that gets free bread every morning from heaven. And I'm giving it to you every day. Yeah, we hate that. We're tired of that. So what did God do? So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. That means poisonous snakes. God sent poisonous snakes into the camp of Israel. Did the poisonous snakes exercise any free will? (laughs) The poisonous snakes did exactly what God wanted them to do, which means God is the sovereign God of animals and species and snakes. Next time you find a snake in your backyard, God's in charge of that. Yeah, remember that when you drive him out of your yard, which I did just recently. I found a snake in our backyard, and I I drove him very cunningly into my neighbor's yard. So it was, (laughs) Steve, you have a snake in your yard. (laughs) The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, Okay, we've sinned. <laughs> okay, we realize it now. That complaining thing we were doing, that unhappiness with the, the free bread every day, okay, we realize we're probably wrong here because we're getting killed. But we have spoken against the Lord and against you, so intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks on it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on the standard, which means it would be lifted up high above the people. It's up on a pole. And it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, we're not provided with any theology here. We're just told What happened? And yet, Jesus picked up that very thing and said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all kinds of men to me. And so this is clearly typological of Christ. But notice what had to happen here. If you've been bitten by a poisonous snake, and of course, the devil is referred to oftentimes as that serpent and that snake, even when we're introduced to him in the book of Genesis. He's a snake. But if you're bitten by that snake, notice that you don't have to come to the serpent on the pole and recite a proper theological statement. You don't have to come and have all your theological ducks in a row. You have to do one thing. You only have to do one thing, and you'd be okay again. You'd be saved from the bite of the poisonous snakes. All you had to do was look. And I compare that very frequently to the thief on the cross who said to Christ, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Christ said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Notice that Christ did not say to him, sure, go get baptized, join a church, have a good attendance record, make sure you got all your theological stuff going. John Calvin won't be around for about 1,500 years, but it would be good if you understood Calvinism. No, all he knew was who to look to. 
And while he was on the cross and he was moments from dead, he looked to Christ and said, remember me. And that did it. And he got a more sure word of his salvation than I have ever gotten. Jesus has never said to me, today you'll be with me in paradise. But he said it to that thief simply for the look to the Savior. And so all of that, I believe, is prefigured back here in the bronze serpent on the pole that is lifted up. And anybody who was bit by a poisonous snake, if he looked on the bronze serpent. Now, by the way, notice that the image that's on the pole is the image of the thing that's killing them. He didn't say, make a bronze typification of a man on a cross. He said, make a typification of the very thing that's killing them. And the thing that is killing all of us is our sin. And when Christ hung on the cross, the writers of the New Testament tell us, Paul's very clear about it, he became sin for us. He took the penalty and the punishment and he became a curse for us. In other words, the very thing that was killing us was raised up on the cross, typified by the serpent on the pole. Back to 2 Kings. We're done here. So, can you see now, with that background, with that history, can you see why people would get confused and worship the object rather than the God of the object? This is the pole that saved many people alive. This is the pole that all you had to do was look at the bronze serpent and you were going to be saved if a, if a serpent bit you. And this is the history of Israel. And we've kept this for all these years. And so people were worshiping that thing. And one of the good things, one of the things that God commends Hezekiah for is that Hezekiah broke that thing. Here we'll read it. He removed the high places, verse 4. Chapter 18, 2 Kings, he broke down the sacred pillars, he cut down the Asherah, he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and Hezekiah called it Nehushtan. This is a nothing, this is a thing of brass, and then he broke it so that people could not worship it anymore. So he was very good about driving people back to that singular-minded worship of Yahweh alone. And the crime of the people living in Samaria was that they did not give God his singularity. And again, because God does not change, God expects to be singularly worshipped today. And this mixing of other gods and other worship and the bowing down and burning of incense to other things is just as much a crime against God today as it was 3,000 years ago. Idolatry. It's still idolatry. Yeah, nothing changed. So he, Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. He kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. We're going to see next week from 2 Chronicles, we're going to see that he reestablished the Passover. He reestablishes, well, Ahaz, as you might recall, Ahaz had broken a lot of the furniture that was in the temple. Ahaz had made it impossible 
to truly worship God the way God commanded that he be worshipped. And so Hezekiah is going to have the priests restore all that and rebuild all that. And the temple worship is going to resume under Hezekiah. You got all that? So that's nice. It's good to have a little good news. Because we've had an awful lot of bad news about really bad kings. Next week we'll get to hear some good stuff about Hezekiah. All right, so God's the God who is sovereign over animals. He's in charge of his creation. I say that over and over again. If he's in charge of animals and in charge of birds and lions and snakes and all the other animals that we see him take control over, then I, I suspect, no, I insist, that he's sovereign over every cell and every atom and everything that goes on in his universe. An hour ago I said, where is that line? I don't believe the line exists. I believe he's sovereign over everything. And that's a good thing to remember. That's a good thing to know. Because the one who is sovereign over everything has your best interest at heart. Got it? Got it. Yes, sir. Just when you said that, so our, back to your analogy about your son, which I really like, the cells and everything is controlled, the cells in our brains are yeah. making decisions Still up to him, isn't it? Yeah. It really is impossible. If you really drill down deep, it is impossible to draw the line. It's easy when you talk in big terms. You know, oh, well, he's in charge of big things, but little things are up to me. Those are so general, it's easy to think in those terms philosophically. But when you get right down to it and say, okay, where's the line? What's he not in charge of? And then if you go a little over that, he is in charge of it. Where, where's that line? It's impossible. I had a guy, this was many, many years ago when I used to work at ComData. I had lunch with a guy who said, um, I have free will. And his proof of it was, this is my finger. And I can turn my finger this way or this way. And it's up to me. And I said, that's not free will. That's a will that's limited to this or this. You can't make your, your finger 10 foot tall. You can't make it purple or king of England. You can't do anything else with your finger except this or this. So what you have is the illusion of choice. But you're limited in your choices. And if you think about the choices that you have in life, they are always limited. They're limited by your circumstances. They're limited by where you live. They're limited by your upbringing, your intelligence. Your choices are always limited. And who did the limiting? Well, God did. So your will is not free. You get that? Yeah. All right. Anything else? You know, I think it's interesting that when Moses made that bronze serpent, it was after God's clear command to not make any images of anything in any part of the creation. Right. And yet God gave him that command. Make the image. And the Israelites still abused that. Mm -hmm. And don't you think God knew that? Oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah. There's no command that's recorded to us that says, okay, the time of the fiery serpents is over, so get rid of this image. Right. Somebody decided to save it, and then they started abusing it and worshiping it. Yeah. Kind of like 
so many people we know do to, you know, lighting candles for the saints and whatever. But he never healed anything else. <coughs> well, yep. that's true too, but yeah. hey, I can bring the offering and put it in front of that instead of taking it to the priest at the, at the altar, yeah. as I should. As often as God tests Israel, I can see the fiery serpent as a test. God says, okay, go ahead and make that. You know, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> are you going to keep my commands? Are you going to keep my directives and worship only me? Or are you going to be drawn away by that? So, anything else? Good comment. All right, then. We're done here. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.